0: I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. America 1963. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Those who do nothing are inviting shame, as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing
1: rights
0: It's not known for sure, but it is believed that President Kennedy has been shot. President Kennedy was in a motorcade en route to the Trademark, where he was to address a luncheon gathering shortly afternoon today.
2: I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 34th episode of Presidential.
0: Resigned the presidency, effectively, that means What your country can do for you. A nation will live in place of hate.
2: This episode is about JFK and death, but not his assassination. Our whole episode this week is basically going to focus on John F. Kennedy before 1963. In fact, even before 1961, when he takes over the presidency. We're going to focus on three experiences he had confronting death earlier in his life and how those shaped the man and the president he would become. The first is when he confronted his own mortality because of his sicknesses since childhood. The second is when he confronted the mortality of those close to him, particularly with the death of his older brother. And the third is when he confronted the mortality of the wider human race, highlighted by his experience in war. To cover all this, there are three great JFK experts who are gonna talk with us this week, Michael Beschloss, Robert Dalek, and Frederick Logevall. So we're gonna start by talking about Kennedy's own personal sense of mortality and his poor health. And for this, I went to visit Robert Dalek at his home in Washington, DC. It's so nice to meet Hi. you. Nice me to meet you. Thanks, um, I actually live just on the other side of the park. Did you? Bob wrote the iconic Kennedy biography called An Unfinished Life, in which he uncovered many of JFK's illnesses that had been kept from the public for decades. I asked him to tell me the story about how he discovered this hidden part of Kennedy's personal life. I was
1: in the Kennedy Library doing the uh, research. I asked the archivist, are there Kennedy medical materials? Because there were allegations in 1960 that he had Addison's disease, that he was, uh, had a variety of ailments, and uh, Bobby Kennedy, and they denied it, the campaign denied it. And it was not something that came up all that much during his presidency. So the uh, archivist woman named Megan Denoyers said to me, yes, there are medical records, but they're locked up, and there is a committee that oversees them, three people on that committee. She said, you can apply, nobody's been given access 40 years after his death. So I said, well, I guess there's nothing to lose. So I applied, and there was a, a former Kennedy administration official who was a professor at Harvard, another one who was professor at Yale, and both of them gave me permission. And Ted Sorensen, speechwriter, principal advisor to Kennedy, he was the third party and he was reluctant. So I went to New York and uh, I talked him into opening the medical records to me. He later regretted it very much because uh, the medical records were not entirely flattering. Though, Ted Kennedy read the book and said he didn't know about his brother's health issues as well as fully as I detailed them in the book. And Arthur Schlesinger, who was White House intellectual historian, also found it very attractive, what I did, because they both felt that I made Kennedy look heroic. I didn't do it purposely, but there was that element to it. He had such a variety of ailments. He, as a boy, uh, had uh, was called spastic colitis, and he was sent to the Mayo Clinic when he was 17 years old. And uh, they didn't know how to treat it at the time. When steroids became available, which was in 1938, I believe, he was at Harvard as an undergraduate, and they didn't have a dose. So they gave him more than they should have been giving him and while it rained in the colitis, when they gave him these steroids, what it did was it triggered his back problems. People thought the back problems were the result of an accident during the World War II when his PT boat was cut in half and he had to swim and, and rescue one of his men and go to an island. In fact, it was the uh, steroids that were causing osteoporosis of the lumbar spine. And he lived with terrible pain and misery and was on all sorts of painkillers. Well, when they told me I could see the medical records, I took a man named Jeffrey Kelman with me to Boston because he is a brilliant physician. And they rolled out these 10 boxes. They were cartons. See, normally presidential papers are in these beautifully appointed gold and blue and yellow boxes, and these were in old, beat-up cartons. Hmm. And I said to him, Jeff, I think we may have had pay dirt here. these have never been looked at. Hmm. So we opened it up, and what we found to begin with was that in the 1950s, before he even ran for president, he had been hospitalized 19 times for a variety of ailments. The uh, Addison's disease, which is the malfunctioning of the adrenal gland, uh, for the terrible back problems, I and mean, he had some back surgeries. He also had uh, sinusitis and prostatitis, and uh, he was just someone who had a constant uh, series of, of, of ailments, and it was hidden from the public.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, the fact that he had to hide so much of his you know, medical problems, Did anything to make him feel a sense of always being sort of like a performer?
1: You know, all these presidents are actors on a world stage. And of course, the larger the stage, as we move through our 20th century, the more they feel compelled to be great actors. Now, Franklin Roosevelt said to Orson Welles, great Hollywood actor, he said to him at one point, Orson You and I are the two greatest actors in America. Kennedy understood that the public persona was something that was different from the private
2: man. Do, do you think that a sense of just his own like mortality yes. shaped him? And
1: John Kennedy lived with a, a, a sense of mortality, a sense that his life might be relatively brief. And, of course, it's ironic because it was true. He died at the age of 46, but not because of his health problems, but because of being assassinated. But still, he had a sort of fatalistic feeling.
2: From a young age, one of JFK's favorite poems was I Have a Rendezvous with Death by Alan Seeger. This is how it goes. I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade. When spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep pillowed in silk and scented down, where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse, and breath to breath where hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year, And I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous.
3: I think one of the central things to know about JFK is that there's every sign that for most of his life, he thought that he would not live out a normal span of life.
2: This is historian and biographer Michael Beschloss on the phone with me now.
3: Robert Kennedy once said that Something like half of his days on earth were spent in intense physical pain, and the result was that this is someone who made an effort to sort of live every minute and almost every second. You know, if you're going to do something, you better do it now because you might not have the chance tomorrow. And that, I think, until he was well into the presidency, led to this sort of immediate thinking. He was very short term, very crisis oriented, and that's something that he even admitted himself in private. For instance, civil rights. In 1961, rather than going to Congress and saying, you know, I'm going to send a bill to Congress that's going to, to eliminate segregation in this country, whether it passes or not, he thought that you could go for at least a couple of years and just sort of deal with crisis after crisis you know, offenses that were being committed against African-Americans in the South and didn't need to do it by legislation. By 1963, he finally realized that you couldn't deal with civil rights simply in terms of short-term thinking, and the same thing was true in foreign policy. Early 1961, if you would ask Kennedy, do you think that you should try to negotiate with the Soviets a full test ban treaty? He would have thought it was probably impossible and he would have thought that that's the kind of approach to the cold war that's not very effective instead you know deal with crisis after crisis after the cuban missile crisis which was october of 1962 in which you know much of the human race very nearly was incinerated because of the showdown between moscow and washington he realized that more long-term thinking was needed
2: Okay, let's wind back the clock again now and explore another aspect of his childhood. JFK grew up in a big Catholic family. They first lived in Massachusetts and then moved around to various other spots in the Northeast. And it was a time in the country when there was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment. There were signs in shop windows that said things like, Catholics need not apply. But JFK's family was extremely wealthy, and also very political. His mother's father had been mayor of Boston, and JFK's own father had made a lot of money in the stock exchange and other exploits, and eventually himself served as ambassador to Britain under FDR. So here's where we're gonna start talking about another experience JFK has earlier in his life confronting mortality, and that's with the death of his older brother, his older brother Joe Jr was being groomed for political office and Jack was constantly compared against him throughout their childhood. So here now I'm going to talk with Frederick Logevall, who's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and who is finishing up his own comprehensive biography of JFK. First of all, thank you so much for doing this.
4: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be involved.
2: You know, Tell me about the family he's born into, maybe starting with what his mother and father were like.
4: Uh, It was, in many respects, a loving family, if somewhat dysfunctional. Joe, who is the father, and Rose, the mother, uh, came ultimately to lead uh, separate lives. Uh, And so they had a difficult marriage. But I think it should also be said, the kids, including Jack who was second in the order to, to Joe Jr., who was the, the firstborn. They experienced um, a lot of love uh, in this family. Rose, the mom, uh, she, t- she withheld emotional attachment to a degree, but I wouldn't want to uh, exaggerate this because she was in many respects a quite remarkable woman. And Joe, the father, uh, for all of his faults, and they were many, was I think a deeply loving father I think in in some respects he actually lived for the kids and it was this environment in which the kids grew up in a very competitive atmosphere one in which you know placing second uh, I think was drilled into them was never good enough you had to you had to strive to be number one
2: so FDR was another president who you know we saw who grew up in a lot of privilege but he was essentially an only child and so he was completely, exclusively doted on. Jack, on the other hand, was one of nine children. So how do you think being part of such a large family shaped his sense of self?
4: The older kids... And the, the boys in the family, more was expected of them, but more was also given to them in terms of authority within the household, uh, in terms of the opportunities they could pursue than was the case with the girls and with the, uh, the younger kids. Joe Jr., who was the oldest of the children, became almost a kind of second father figure even. Um, and to a lesser extent, I think that was true of, of Jack that they had, they were expected to take care of, to help nurture, to help uh, mold um, the, the younger kids. And I think you see in later life, including in the presidency, the degree to which this was a family. These were kids who did in fact stick together. Whatever dysfunctionality might have existed, there was a closeness to this family that I think um, existed from start to finish.
2: Do you want to say a little bit more about what some of the dysfunction was? And also, you know, what um, Jack's relationship with his father looks like earlier in his life?
4: Yeah. Um, the emphasis on winning, really winning at all costs, uh, I think that it was traumatic. It was difficult in many respects, especially, of course, when they didn't uh, succeed. and. I think it introduced stresses into the dynamic that wouldn't have been there otherwise. The relationship that Jack had with his father and that Joe Jr. had with his father was a strong one in many respects. I think it was complicated. The boys saw the philandering by the father by Joe saw the affairs that he had that he spoke by the way quite openly with his sons about to a degree he even challenged them to match him in in that area that's a distressing thing for a biographer to uncover and to see he was really quite brazen not only with with his sons but the other older older kids also saw this of course and rose uh, his wife uh, had to endure had to put up with this which was something she also had to see up close and personal with her own father.
2: Mm. Um, what sort of character traits stand out to you in Jack and his youth? Like what sort of interests and proclivities did he have early on? What were some of like the natural skills that showed themselves?
4: From an early age, we see in Jack a very thoughtful boy, a very thoughtful young man, uncommonly so, more so I would say than than Joe Jr. his 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 older brother with whom he was constantly compared of course so that's a that's a a trait that he develops in part because of his illnesses which keep him bedridden for long stretches of time he develops an interest in reading and in particular in history and in biography that's evidence from an early point and i think is actually important in shaping him and contributes to the kind of decision maker he will be later, both as a, as a lawmaker uh, in, in Congress and in the Senate, but then also as, as President of the United States. Um, one can detect a, an appreciation by JFK of the vicissitudes of history, of the degree to which it doesn't follow in clear paths, the degree to which the unexpected will interfere with even the best laid plans. I think he had a sense that there were limits to what even great military powers can achieve by military means. And that comes in part, I think, from his reading of history. You also see from an early point a kind of ironic sense of humor, a really winning sense of humor, which again, I think his older brother doesn't quite share. Jack is the funnier one. He is um, very charming. Uh, And this is a a trait that he uses to great effect, uh, you know, when he goes off to college and then beyond. In addition to a certain absent-minded sloppiness and he's not good about getting work done in school, he's an indifferent student. Those things you see as well, all of it producing, of course, the later JFK.
2: What would it be like to go on a blind date with JFK? (laughs)
4: To go on a blind date with JFK. Um,
2: You know, you had mentioned how much he loved reading and how thoughtful he was, and yet also how funny and charming. So, I mean, do you see him as more of an extrovert than an introvert or an interesting combination of both? Or, you know, how, like, naturally outgoing was he? He was not,
4: notwithstanding, I think notwithstanding the... The charm and the sense of humor, and this curiosity that he had, uh, he was in some ways a little bit detached. Uh, he was and a little bit withdrawn is the wrong word, but he was he was not um, he was not as extroverted as Joe Jr. His older brother was more ebullient and uh, more brash. That's not a word that I would use with. With JFK, he was a little bit more shy. One of the reasons he was not a very effective politician early on, in fact, he was quite terrible in terms of being on the on the stump and in terms of campaigning and as a public speaker, was because he was uh, he was reticent uh, socially, um, and so you needed to have a certain setting, I think, for this this kind of quiet charisma and this charm to come out. But it existed alongside this reserve that I think he also showed to some extent. I think he got it from his mother. Uh, in some ways, he was more like his more like his mom than like his his father in terms of his personality.
2: And so, then, what does the womanizing piece of his story tell you about him?
4: I think it's uh, it's certainly uh, at least in part a function of what he observed and his father who was, who was very open about his womanizing, uh, not least with his two older boys uh, and made quite clear he expected them to behave in the same way. Um, but, you know, we make, we're ultimately responsible for our own actions. And so it certainly cannot be said that this is all about um, Joe Sr. and about the father. I think that Jack came to engage in this in a in a sort of serial uh, way, uh, not a sort of serial way, in a serial way. And, you know, it's been suggested by some that it is connected to his sense that he did not have a long life, that because of his various illnesses he was destined to die uh, earlier than others and that therefore, you know, life was fleeting and he needed to be constantly uh, engaged and stimulated, I don't know. Um, The biographer, I would say this, that I think it matters to the degree that it helps us explain him as a public figure. It helps us explain his decisions ultimately as president. Does it show a recklessness on his part? that has potential implications for how he conducts himself as president, especially. That's important.
2: So, I mean, people always talk about how it was the oldest mm-hmm. brother, Joe, who yeah. was the one being, you know, kind of groomed mm-hmm. by the family for the presidency. Um, what effect do you think that had on Jack? Do you, I mean, do you think that early on it planted a desire in him as well to... Be president and have political ambition, or do you think it initially made him feel like that wasn't his fate, and he should direct his ambitions elsewhere?
4: Yeah, he's a very smart uh, and, and observant young man. I think seeing Joe Junior's personal political uh, ambitions and seeing the father's emphasis on what Joe should be doing, and the hopes that 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 Joe Senior had for for Joe Junior. I think it made Jack, on some level at least, determined to to strike his own path and determined to find a different vocation, a different career. For a while, he was thinking about perhaps being a college professor. He thought about being a historian, a journalist. He considered, I think, various um, other paths in part because, again, Joe Jr. seemed so set on and seemed almost predetermined. Um, for political office.
2: When World War II came around, Joe Jr. ended up a pilot and Jack ended up in the Navy. And here's how Robert Dalek told me the story of what exactly caused Joe Jr.'s death.
1: John Kennedy, I don't think, ever would have become a politician, ever would have become president if his older brother hadn't been killed in World War II. Mm-hmm. The brother was killed on a special mission, and I discovered some interesting information about that. The brother was uh, flying with a co-pilot, and they were supposed to bail out as they got to the English Channel and the planes were to be put on automatic pilot and they were loaded with uh, huge amounts of explosives. They were supposed to fly into the German V-2 rockets launches that were on the Belgian and French coast, you see. So the idea was to knock out these rocket launching sites with this uh, plane that was going to be flying on automatic pilot. Now. What happened was, and this was told to me by a, uh, a British Army officer, the American radar installations were told to turn off as Joseph Kennedy's plane flew over before he and his co-pilot bailed out at the English Channel. And they forgot to tell the British radar sites. And so when that plane came within range of those British radar sites, it triggered the mechanisms, the electronics, that touched off the explosions. And So that plane exploded and they never found any of uh, just Kennedy's body parts. It was just such a, a huge explosion.
2: The story goes that it was really after Joe's death that the father switched his focus to, you know, John's rise to the presidency. Um, what did this actually look like? I mean was was it a sort of an outright pushing of him up the political ladder or was this just a a subtler sense that JFK got that the obligation fell to him?
4: The question of, of, of when, when JFK decided to run for pol- for political office and, and, and for what reasons has obviously generated a lot of discussion, a lot of debate among, among historians. It's a little bit hard, at least I find, to, to pin down. I think Jack, for his own reasons, begins even in 1944. To a degree, at least, he begins to do this even before Joe Jr. is killed um, to muse the about uh, potentially seeking political office. I think he's become fascinated by politics. That said, I think there's no question but that Joe Sr. also sees now that Jack is the sort of um, heir apparent or the successor to Joe because he had placed so much faith in in, in Joe Jr.'s uh, future in politics, uh, said to many, many people. My son, Joe Jr., uh, is going to be pursuing political office, and he's destined for great things, just you watch. And I do think that for him, after Joe Jr. is killed, it falls to Jack to, to, to fulfill this family destiny.
2: The death of his brother switched JFK's own life course. It's in 1944 that Joe Jr. dies. And by 1946, JFK has won a seat in Congress, representing a district in Boston. But, as Michael Beschloss is about to describe in more detail, Jack had not been groomed for politics his whole life the way that Joe Jr. had, and so there were some important political skills that he initially lacked.
3: I think at the beginning of his aspiration for political life, running for Congress, This is not someone who felt at ease as a political candidate. You know, his original speeches were awful, and he oftentimes said, you know, my brother Joe would have done so much better at this. He was not particularly extroverted, as his older brother had been, so he had to learn what he called a street personality. That was not easy for him. But one thing that Jackie Kennedy said in her memoirs, which I edited for publication, uh, she said, and she was reflecting what Jack had told her, I think that Joe Jr. might have made it to, say, the Senate level, but would never have become president. You know, was very good in terms of great personality and connecting with people, but didn't have the breadth and perhaps the intelligence that JFK did. And so, oddly enough, although Joe Kennedy in 1946 thought his son Jack was, a poor substitute for Joe, Ju- Joe Jr., I think she wasn't wrong that by 1960 he had grown way beyond.
2: What, um, what stand out to you as some of the smartest or most strategic ways that JFK and, you know, his wider family set him up for the presidency?
3: JFK had an enormous amount of help from his father. Joe Kennedy once said, for the Kennedys, it's either the White House or the outhouse. No in-between. His father opened his checkbook, spent a lot of money. One estimate was even 10 or 15 million dollars in 1960 money. That was an advantage that no other candidate had. Joe Kennedy had all sorts of relationships with all sorts of powerful people all over the country. That all helped. But I think to look at Jack as just sort of the product of a father or the product of brother, brothers and sisters, you know, that would not happen unless you had a candidate of extremely strong will and talent and it was the combination that helped him to win in the 1960
2: okay so here are 10 assorted major things that you probably know about JFK but we're gonna tick through just as a reminder since we're not gonna dive into these deeply in the episode number one is his political career He won three elections to Congress and was elected twice to the Senate. He also tried for the vice presidential slot in the 1956 election, but didn't get it. Two, his marriage. He married Jackie when he was 36 years old, and they had two children who essentially died at birth and then two who survived into adulthood. Three, his book Profiles in Courage. This is a book about senators in American history who took brave but unpopular stands, and it won JFK the Pulitzer Prize. He worked on it while he was a senator himself, and he was recovering from a back surgery. Four, the Berlin Wall was built by the Soviet Union and East Berlin during JFK's administration. Five, the Bay of Pigs invasion. This was in his first few months as president that JFK ordered the invasion of Cuba, And it was supposed to start an uprising that would overthrow Fidel Castro, but it ended up failing hugely and publicly. 6. The Cuban Missile Crisis This one goes better. So, this is in 1962. The CIA learned that the Soviets were building missile sites in Cuba, but Kennedy successfully negotiated with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev to end the showdown. 7. The U.S., the U.K., and the Soviet Union signed on to a nuclear test-ban treaty under Kennedy that would mostly stop atomic testing. Eight. The Peace Corps was established by Kennedy as one of his first acts in office. Nine. Civil rights. So in 1963, Kennedy issued a set of proposals that would come to form the basis of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was passed after his death. And ten. While he was serving in the Pacific during World War II, JFK's PT boat sank, and he helped rescue a bunch of his crewmates. Now, there's some debate over what exactly happened, but he received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for Heroism, and that takes us now to Chapter 3 of our episode, which is the way that JFK's experiences overseas, particularly seeing the devastation of war, shaped The later president he would become. Here's Fred Logevall.
4: He begins to travel in the second half of the 1930s. So by this point, he is, you know, late teens, early 20s, and and crucial here are some trips to Europe, including when his father is ambassador uh, in London. They really open uh, JFK's eyes to. Obviously, the, the turmoil in Europe uh, and the fact that he's there as the war clouds in Europe begin to gather I think is extremely important because he sees so much of this up close. He then writes his senior thesis about some of this, uh, becomes a kind of minor bestseller as a book if you can imagine for an undergraduate thesis and then going from there to serving in the Pacific in World War II. I think of, of a kind of foundational experience for Jack. It Over the long term affects his view of war. I think it makes him deeply skeptical of warfare in general as, as a solution to political problems. I think he has seen what war can do up close and there is an abhorrence not only on, on his part of course but of a great many Americans and others who served. Uh, in this conflict, a kind of abhorrence of, of war and a, and a determination to try to, 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 to avoid it. I think that's there. It's there in his, in his letters home. And by the way, those letters I think are an extraordinary resource because what they show is kind of awakening of a guy who's already I would argue quite thoughtful, but a kind of awakening in these letters home from the war talking about his experiences a skepticism that also comes through in these letters of military higher-ups, even a cynicism about what his superiors in some cases will order and the decisions that they make. It comes through in these letters and um, there's no question. I think even critics of JFK would say that the, that the experience in the Pacific uh, shaped uh, who he was, shaped a whole generation who served. And when he runs for Congress just, uh, you know, a year after war's end, that World War II experience is central to his candidacy, central to his appeal. And it will be, you know, for the rest of his life.
2: When you look at the type of decisions that he made on foreign affairs while president, where do you see these experiences playing out?
4: What he sees uh, in combat uh, affects his decision-making in uh, as president in a few different ways. I do think it helps to cement uh, a skepticism about the military instrument. He understands, I think, from his own experience that it's a very blunt instrument, uh, that it can sometimes be – Important to use. He's certainly no pacifist, um, he, uh, as president, and he's willing to use that instrument. But I think it does make him leery of it. Um, and I think on the, you know, the great counterfactual question regarding Vietnam: What would a surviving President Kennedy, if he had returned from Dallas alive in November of 1963, what would he have done in Vietnam? Uh, we can't know, of course, but I think. Uh, What we see in his decisions on Vietnam as president and his pronouncements on Vietnam prior to becoming president is we see skepticism about the use of ground forces and an unwillingness even when his advisors – push for him to commit ground forces to Southeast Asia. He's unwilling to do so as president. And I think that gives us some reason to to believe that a surviving John F. Kennedy would likely not have Americanized the war in the way that his successor did. In in several ways we see this earlier Kennedy, I think, come through as a decision maker when he is in the in the Oval Office.
2: So I asked Robert Dalek about this too. What he sees as an example of the way that Kennedy's war experience shaped him as president.
1: When he became president, he instructed George Bundy, who became his national security advisor, to uh, find out from the Pentagon what the nuclear war plan was. They go into uh, a room in the White House. They set up easels, and what they show Kennedy is that in the case of a nuclear war. They could kill, they said, 270 million Russians and Eastern Europeans with the nuclear weapons we had. It was Kennedy who said, with these 30,000 nuclear bombs, how many of these did you need? Now, when Kennedy walked out of that room with his Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, after that briefing on the nuclear war plan, he said to Rusk, and we call ourselves the human race. So he was terrified of the thought of using those nuclear weapons. He understood that it entailed a kind of inhumanity, a kind of uh, destructiveness that would leave a, a, a black mark against the United States forever thereafter.
2: On Friday, November 22nd, 1963, JFK was shot and killed while riding in his motorcade in Dallas, Texas. His body was flown back to the White House overnight that night, and Jacqueline Kennedy refused to take off her blood-soaked pink outfit until his body was back there at rest. His body was put in the East Room of the White House, which is the same room where Lincoln's body had lain after his assassination. All that next day after he was killed, it rained. Though we focused this episode on his earlier life, I did ask each of our guests what they see as Kennedy's most enduring legacy, the way that he most profoundly shaped the office of the American presidency. Here's Michael Beschloss
3: A lot of the things that we see about presidential politics now, to some extent, date to John Kennedy the use of television uh the fact that you have a candidate who raises a lot of money and uses it and particularly the fact that after Kennedy it was very hard again to have a person running for president who was not able to speak to people in a way that moved them you know for most of american history until the early 20th century you know for instance it didn't matter if Chester Arthur couldn't give a speech or didn't look great because no, uh, not many people would would see him in person. Kennedy was sort of the moment where that all changed, and the result was that a different kind of person was more likely to be a presidential nominee.
2: In a way, is it sort of what we talk about when we talk about charisma?
3: Uh, it's more than just that. Uh, people now feel that they need to connect with a leader who becomes president. It doesn't mean that, you know, as it's so often said, they need to have a beer with him or her. I think more than that, it is that they have to feel that they understand the person's soul so that when that president is making all sorts of decisions, uh, you have to have some comfort that that president is going to do the right thing. I think that's what we're getting at when we're talking about connecting with a human being who might become president.
2: Here's Frederick Logevall.
4: It was to further a belief, to instill a conviction on the part of a great many Americans and a great many people overseas regarding what public affairs can accomplish, regarding what politics can accomplish, a belief that Kennedy, maybe more than anybody else, generated, which is that politics won't solve all our problems by any means, but politics – and government have a very, very important role uh, not only in this society but elsewhere and that a call to public service and to, pers- to participate in the affairs of a nation, your nation, whatever nation that is, is something to, to strive for. And I think to some extent, I think it's a belief that you know flickers, that, that is flagging in our own day but I think it's still there uh, underneath – uh, or so I hope. Uh, and that's what JFK uh, in part represents.
2: Here's Robert Dalek. He
1: was only there for a thousand days. It's the seventh briefest presidency in American history. So why does he continue to have this enduring hold on the public's imagination? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that he had a vision that America thinks of itself still as a country in process. It's growing. It's changing. It's moving on to a new frontier always. It's ambitious. It's not stuck in some old world vision of itself. Uh, it, 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 it's sort of like this idea that anybody can become president in America. We're all equal. This this is the idea which I think attaches to him. And Kennedy is the modern man. See? And that's why I think even the womanizing doesn't hurt him. They see him as a kind of modern man who uh, in every way represents uh, the up-to-date, so to speak, in America. So he has a hold on the public's imagination. And I don't think anyone's going to take its place for the foreseeable future.
2: Let's end not with his death, but with words of Kennedy's from a speech he gave that summer of 1963. Kennedy spoke at American University in Washington, D.C., and his address there came to be known as his Peace Speech. Here are the lines that most struck me that I want to share with you.
0: For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal.
2: Many thanks to this week's guests, Michael Beschloss, Robert Dalek, and Frederick Logevall. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WP underscore presidential. Next week is all about Lyndon Johnson, and we have got one incredible guest for the entire episode, Robert Caro. He's the biographer who has spent the past Four decades of his life working on a five volume series about LBJ. Come back to listen.